Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to this edition of B Radio. Uh, tonight I have some guests, as always, um, two special guests who would be the Journey to Venus cyclists. Say hello to Chris and Brian. Say hello, Chris and Brian. Hello. Hi. <laughs> I also have Thunder and um, Wage Slave from the Zeitgeist Forums, who will be now known as Jackie, another one of the donators to my cause. Thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. Great show. Thank you. All right. Well, tonight we're going to be continuing our series um, of uh, basically reading the book, The Best That Money Can't Buy, and opening up to our panelists so that they might be able to comment on the various chapters, perhaps talk about how any parts of this chapter may have been something that they have you know, experienced in their own life that might be relevant. Um, once again, I do have the, uh, the chat room active, and uh, I hope that you'll join us there if you have any questions. At some point, um, that's interesting. I just said that I was disconnected from my own chat room. <laughs> anyway, um, at, at some point, if you guys have any questions, um, by all means, um, you know, bring them up to us, and I'll probably also open the call-in line if it comes down to it. If you have a question about a specific part that we're discussing, just wait until the end of the chapter when we're at the talking portion, and I'll see you on the switchboard, and then I'll add you to the call. So, anyway, um, once again, thank you all for participating. This is a two-hour show. Uh, if anybody needs a bio break, just let me know. <laughs> so, all right. Um, basically, uh, first of all, uh, let me um, allow uh, our new, basically each one of our panelists to introduce themselves to perhaps our first-time listeners. Uh, let me start with you, Brian. Hello. Uh, my name is Brian, and I am one of the guys from journeytobenus.com who uh, crossed the country from Los Angeles to Venus um, in the attempt to bring attention to the Venus Project. And now we've been down here in Venus for about a month helping out, um, enjoying our time here, and learning lots of, of new and exciting things. And that's All right. me. <laughs> All right. Um, let me go ahead and have the other Journey to Venus cyclist uh, introduce himself then. Hi, I'm Chris. Um, I won't be as verbose. <laughs> I just needed to use that word. <laughs> I feel smart. <laughs> Um, also, rode my bike with Brian for most of the way across the country. We every now and then got a ride when we could. And we're here in Venus, helping with Roxanne and Jacques and having a blast. All right, Jackie, that brings it to being your turn. Please feel free to introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm, I'm Wage Slave uh, of the forums. I've been a member, I guess, since mid-January, so about a month into the forums being open, and I'm really excited about tonight. I'm really excited about the movement. I have a little, you know, very positive uh, feeling about how it's going to go, and, you know, I'm working here in New York with Folly 13. We're trying to put together a New York chapter website and get some New York chapter meetings going, so, you know, I'm I'm pretty busy, and then, you know, I've got some job things on the, on the horizon, so I'm hoping to work out, so that'll really free me up to uh, dedicate more time to this movement as well. So that's me. All right. Well, uh, that would bring it to you, Thunder. Show us what you got. Who are you? Why are you here? All that other jazz. Well, most people know why I'm here. Everybody calls me Thunder. I have my own blog talk show now um, called uh, TVP Radio. And, of course, I've, I've been exposed to this for some time now. I uh, work a lot with V. 
uh, on his shows and doing some editing and, and various things. Uh, we're working on getting the uh, the VTV channel going. Um, all kinds of things happening. Obviously, a strong advocate of the Venus Project and the Zeitgeist Movement, and uh, one of the very active members in the Ventrilo server. For those of you uh, that don't have Ventrilo, you ought to come in and, and chat with us once in a while. We're in there a lot. And um, other than that, I'm just here to lend whatever I can lend. All right, great. Um, I'm going to ask the listeners who are in the chat room to uh, comment on our sound quality. Um, first of all, did you guys, did the, me moving the fan help? You guys hearing me clear? No, you sound great. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, all right. Perfect. Well, um, I do uh, want to mention one other thing I forgot. Go right I ahead. Became, I became a moderator today. Yay! Yay! Yay. Yeah, um, Tank hooked me up, and I'm moderator of the uh, education sub-team along with Fusion Halo, so I hope to get with him later this week, and you know, we can uh, really start this thing going. Excellent. Jinx. Have <laughs> <laughs> no, no fun with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well... Uh, let me go ahead and get started here on the book. If you guys want to mute your mics, you can. Just make sure that you can unmute them afterwards. And um, we're on Chapter 6, The Inhumanity of a Monetary-Based System. Although skillful advertisers lead us to believe otherwise, in today's money-based economies, the human consequences of introducing new technologies seldom concern those introducing the technology. In a monetary system, the major aim is profit. Maintaining the competitive edge in the bottom line is all that matters. The social and health problems that arise from mass unemployment of people rendered obsolete by automation are considered irrelevant, if they are considered at all. Any social need that may be met is secondary to acquiring a profit for the business. If the profit is insufficient, the service will be withdrawn. Everything is subordinate to increasing the profit margin for shareholders. It does not serve the interests of a money-based society to engage in the production of goods and service to enhance the lives of people, just as man-made laws enacted do not protect the lives of citizens. All of the world's economic systems, socialism, communism, fascism, and even our free enterprise capitalist system, perpetuate social stratification, elitism, nationalism, and racism, based primarily on economic disparity. As long as the social system uses money or barter, People and nations will seek differential advantage by maintaining their economic competitive edge or by military intervention. War represents the supreme failure of nations to resolve their differences. From a strictly pragmatic standpoint, it is the most inefficient waste of lives and resources ever conceived. This crude and violent attempt to resolve international differences takes on even more ominous overtones with the advent of elaborate computerized thermonuclear delivery systems deadly diseases and chemicals, and the threat of sabotage to a nation's computer networks. Even when nations desire peace, they usually lack the knowledge to arrive at a peaceful solution. War is not only, I'm sorry, war is not the only form of violence imposed on people by inadequate social arrangements. There is also hunger, poverty, and scarcity. The use of money and the creation of debt foster economic insecurity, which perpetuates crime, lawlessness, and resentment. Paper proclamations and treaties do not alter the facts of scarcity and insecurity, and nationalism tends only to propagate the separation of nations and the world's people. A peace treaty cannot prevent another war if the underlying causes are not addressed. 
The unworkable aspects of international law tend to freeze things as they are. Nations that have conquered land all over the world by force and violence retain their positions of territorial and resource advantage, regardless of treaties. Such agreements serve only as a temporary suspensions of conflict. But focusing our efforts on non-productive and non-creative endeavors wastes lives as surely as war. Throughout history, we have lived through ages characterized by wasted lives in which the abilities of a great many have not been fully realized or utilized. Time, effort, and minds are wasted on the pursuit of money in occupations that contribute nothing to the human intellect or condition. I'm sorry, I'm on page 32 at the very top for those listeners who are commenting in the chat room. From earliest civilizations to the present, most humans have had to work to earn a living. Our attitudes about work may be a carryover from earlier times. During the thousands of years of the monetary system, most workers have been paid just enough to make it necessary that they return to work, even when higher wages have been possible. How else can the wage payer keep the workers coming back? If the employees receive wages that allow them to work a few weeks and then take time off for a world cruise, an extended vacation, or some other luxuries, production schedules would suffer. Even the highly educated and affluent who live in expensive homes and drive expensive cars have to appear at a place of work if they wish to maintain their standard of living. All of us, even top executives, are slaves of the monetary system. Most of us lack a meaningful existence. We stay at jobs we hate in order to buy more gadgets we don't need or to build up earned time offs so we can escape from from the reason we need a vacation in the first place. In the workaday world, many of us are frantically trying to stay afloat, making payments on cars, homes, and material possessions that enslave the body and mind in an endless attempt to secure our future. Although many take home more money today, inflation has decreased purchasing power for most people. We are caught up in the game of getting ahead without thinking about what or whom we're trying to get ahead of. Most of us do not take the time to think about our own lives and how we relate to one another, or to what or who, I'm sorry, to what and who we really are. Even those who achieve economic security are addicted to the media's image of personal success. When we achieve our first economic goal, we want more the cabin cruiser, the vacation house, and the trip abroad. In the monetary world, even our dreams are rationed. We start off with, if only I could make a decent living. If we achieve that, we progress to, if only we had a little house in the country to get away to. I'm sorry. (laughs) If only we had a little house in the country to get away to, then we'd be happy. At each successive gain in this endless chain of dissatisfaction, we acquire more and more material wealth but it's never enough to make us happy. We live in a world of unfulfilled dreams in which we never really come to know or understand what constitutes a meaningful life. Future people may view our phase of civilization as an age of intellectual and economic insufficiency. They may find it difficult to understand how we accepted aggression and competition as being normal. Some parents attempt to secure the future of their daughters and sons by having them marry into a secure position of wealth. This is a form of prostitution or selling to the highest bidder. In a monetary system, democracy is an illusion perpetuated to give the populace a feeling of participation in a so-called democratic process. In general, people nominated for public office are pre-selected by the power elite to serve the interests of the highest bidder. Political parties, 
are an example. A single-party representative runs against another party's single representative. The fantasy is that whichever one wins represents everyone in the election area, regardless of political party or philosophy. The country's actions and decisions are made by and for major corporations. Financial interests, the wealthiest, and the military-industrial complex. As long as money and a monetary system prevail, true democracy will be nothing more than an illusion. We must stop constantly fighting for human rights and equal justice in an unjust system and start building a society where equal rights are an integral part of the design. As long as we remain in a monetary system, most people will never have the money to behave democratically. A person may desire a particular type of house and car, but lack the means to purchase it. How has this person benefited from the democratic process of the freedom to choose? Yet we claim to have a democratic system that is the best government in the world. In actuality, we, only as a free, I'm sorry, we are only as free as our purchasing power permits. With money concentrated in the hands of so few, even this freedom is illusionary. Despite its title and treatment by the media, the Federal Reserve System that controls our currency is not an agency of the federal government run for the benefit of the public. Rather, the Fed is a private institution run solely by and for private profit. Even the amount in reserve is questionable. The Federal Reserve, a private institution deceptively named, has enormous influence over our government, its leaders, our personal savings accounts, and, to a large extent, how many of us will have jobs. The Federal Reserve, not the government, has complete control over the lending of money. It sets interest rates, thereby wielding tremendous political influence. But the Federal Reserve system is not the only private institution that manipulates our economic system. Banks use a process called fractional reserve banking, which enables them to loan more money than they have on deposit to cover the loans. They then charge interest on money they don't have. Through this process, banks lend out at least 10 times more than they have on reserve, which reduces the value of money and leads to inflation. It is no wonder the newest and biggest buildings and cities belong to banks. If we behaved like banks, we would be charged with fraud. This is not a new practice. In 1881, James Garfield, state, Garfield stated, whomever controls the volume of money in any country is absolute master of all, industry, of, all of its industry and commerce. And when you realize that the entire system is very easily controlled one way or another by a few powerful men at the top, you will not have to be told how periods of inflation and depression originate. Private money lenders understood early on the overwhelming benefits of lending money to nations at war when the paybacks were assured by the taxing of their people. This was much more profitable than lending to individuals. Financial interests and corporations instigate wars and other disruptions to this day. The monetary system avoids crisis from the lack of purchasing power of individuals and small companies by propping up the economy with military expenditures, corporate welfare, and funds for research by private industries. The government borrows money from private lending institutions to help support the economy in these areas. This increases the national debt while directing the public's attention away from national problems such as cutting expenditures from the Veterans Administration, cutting aid to the poor, education, environmental concerns, etc. In many instances, our government and corporations use our own military equipment and force to put down revolutionary social changes elsewhere in the world while generating an illusion of prosperity at home. Amschel Rothschild, one of the early beneficiaries of the private banking system, stated, 
quote, give me the power to issue and control a nation's money and I care not who makes its laws, end quote. As it is applied today, financial power is truly immoral. A truly democratic system works only when all people have access to the same opportunities for individual development and economic growth. This is not the goal of a monetary-based system. In a free enterprise system, people who design and build a ski resort don't submit the design to a vote in which all participate. Instead, they submit it to the demands of the market, that is, those who can afford to ski. If they offer enough of the amenities that skiers want and can afford, their resort succeeds. A successful system should cater to the needs of all people. There are many people who would like to ski who can't afford to. Choices are limited to what a certain group of people can afford. This is elitism. Whenever money is involved, there is elitism. Those who control purchasing power have far greater influence. Many years ago, the American people were taxed to build roads for automobiles. They did not vote for this development. The automobile and bus industries, real estate lobbies, and the military greatly influenced the development of freeways and roads because of the potential for automobile and land sales represented by the expansion of the highway system. Many cities had transportation systems that were far cleaner, more efficient, and more economical than automobiles, but these were sold and dismantled by vested interests representing the automobile industry. We now have a transportation system that has caused urban sprawl, the loss of millions of acres of natural areas and croplands, air and water pollution, thousands of people killed or injured each year on highways, and transportation that is so expensive that many cannot afford to participate. For what and for whom has democracy worked in this case? Millions of Americans are taxed for highways which they do not benefit from and which have proved dangerous, inefficient, and expensive as a means of transportation. In our present monetary system, private institutions hoard a great deal of useful knowledge rather than making it available to the world's population. In an increasingly proprietary and commercial world in which even college professors copyright the notes from their lectures, there is a disturbing shift from the spirit of the pioneer to that of the salesman. Several companies recently submitted and received patents on the genome of two men immune to AIDS. The companies neither created nor owned the genetic material nor did they discover it independent of the living bearers of those genes. But they acquired patents on genes in living humans. Is this democracy in action? At this writing, one of the men has threatened legal action. Rather than elevating the human condition, the scientist increasingly morphs into the businessman, auctioning his benefits to the highest bidder. For this reason, much new technology is in the control of private institutions rather than in the public domain. Many heroes from the past are honored for their self-sacrifice in an attempt to make the world a better place. Thousands have sacrificed their lives and others have been tortured and imprisoned during their attempts to better the lives of others. These people often acted as they did without thought for monetary rewards. The big lie perpetuated by those in control of the monetary system is that only competition generates incentive. This system is said to provide employment and incentive, but it also produces greed, corruption, crime, embezzlement, etc. For centuries, governments have directly and indirectly programmed their subjects with the value systems to perpetuate their control. They have used the human mind as a dumping ground for their own values and concepts, and encouraged behavior patterns that generate feelings of guilt at any departure from the values of the established system. At the same time, these control groups have stifled the development of individuality by fostering compliant populations who lack the information and insight to question, 
quote, where exactly do my values come from, end quote. The monetary system places a tremendous unnecessary strain on available resources and denies the benefits of mass production to countless millions of people. In a monetary-based society, profit depends on maintaining an artificial scarcity of goods and services and or the conscious withdrawal of efficiency. Rather than designing automobiles to last for many years, manufacturers waste tremendous amounts of energy retooling for yearly changes to compete for market share with others producing machines that serve exactly the same function. A recent military survey of commercial catalogs identified over 300 types of wrenches differing so slightly that they were interchangeable. While a wrench is a useful tool, what purpose is served by over 300 minimally varying models? Tremendous waste of materials and resources comes from each company doing unnecessary and redundant paperwork, advertising, manufacturing, etc. Another example can be seen when someone addresses the nation on television. The viewer will see dozens of different microphones, each representing a competing media group, when only one or two necessary to report the event throughout the world. Consider also the fashion industry, where clothing is constantly changed in order to induce people to purchase the newest, latest fads. In the United States, during periods of price wars, milk and other agricultural products were destroyed to maintain higher price levels. Where is, this outra- oh, I'm sorry, where is the outrage? We buy into the virtue of work while we allow its products to be destroyed. Equally damaging is planned obsolescence, where industries deliberately create products that break and require replacement or unnecessary repairs. In the aircraft industry, sales of large transport aircraft are not the major source of profit. Large profits come from the maintenance and the replacement of parts. This is particularly so in the military with its dependence on the market. Vendor changes affect costs far more changes in the mission. During World War II, many anti-aircraft guns and armaments were manufactured with parts that were not interchangeable. The parts from one company would not fit the guns of another. Today, Congress pushes the Defense Department to save money by purchasing commercial off-the-shelf equipment. On the surface, buying already available equipment rather than developing military-specific equipment appears sensible. But military equipment must be interoperable as well as supportable all over the world in environments that commercial equipment seldom encounters. Personal computers sent with troops for Desert Storm, for example, failed by hundreds, by the hundreds because of excessive heat and sand encountered in Kuwait. Instead of buying parts for a single model, the military now must accommodate multiple vendors and their equipment, parts, and tools. Our tax money flows far outside government channels. This should surprise no one. A review of the annual defense budget finds numerous examples of congressionally mandated purchases of equipment and services that are of no use to the military. So in addition to your personally buying goods that keep companies in business, your taxes go to them as well. Over a half century ago, the United States Electric Company gave its dynamic inventor, Hiram Maxim, a $20,000 annual life pension and exiled him to England. They needed to get rid of him because he kept inventing improvements. His creative ability made their equipment obsolete before they had time to pay for it. Unfortunately for the U.S., for the US Maxim produced some of his greatest inventions in England. At the same time, he was being knighted for outstanding accomplishments. The United States Electric Light Company was going out of business. Today in Japan, the shelf life of electronic equipment before obsolescence is approximately three months. A money system has existed for centuries, and 
whether we realize it or not, has always been used to control the behavior of those with limited purchasing power. Money has no influence where resources and access are not limited. It is only when resources are scarce that a monetary or barter system can function. In other words, if a person wants goods and services, he or she is obliged to submit to the control of others. When a person goes to work in industry today, he or she enters a private dictatorship from the moment they punch the time clock to the time they leave the premises. We are long overdue for a serious examination and radical overhaul of our economic system and ideologies. Attempting to find solutions to the monumental problems within our present society will only serve as a temporary patchwork, prolonging an obsolete system. Our competitive monetary system did not give us a high standard of living in the United States. Our advantages came from being isolated from hostile neighboring countries, our wide range of natural resources, our fertile land, and the many contributions of inventors and engineers who developed our production technology. Well, that's the end of Chapter 6. Um, now I'm going to call on my panelists. Uh, let's go ahead. Now, Jackie, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Did you have any comments about that chapter? Um. Oh, it's a great chapter, and uh, you know what I really like about Fresco and his book is he really you know knows how to condense it all and put all the information there where it's understandable. And um, you know, we just. I mean, the whole chapter is pretty much dedicated in explaining, you know, to me, um, you know, how the, the monetary system really is stifling our development as a species. I mean, we're creating this tremendous waste that we don't really need for the demands of just, you know, buying and throwing away, buying and throwing away. And, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not sustainable. I mean, it doesn't go into that in that particular, this particular chapter, but... You know, we all realize that this is not sustainable in any way, shape, or form. There's no way the human population can continue to increase and live this way and sustain itself for another thousand years or maybe not even another hundred years. So, you know, I think, you know, this, you know, this is a very important chapter to really understand and be able to explain to other people because, you know, we are in a society that's basically stifling our technological development. Well, I certainly can't disagree with that. Um, Chris and Brian, did you have a comment? I mean, you know, I think one of the, one of the uh, phrases that, you know, I've heard, I've heard Jacques say before and that I really love from this chapter is that, um, you know, when someone goes to work in any industry today, they enter a private dictatorship from the moment they punch the time clock to the time they leave the premises. You know, prior to going on this bicycle trip, I worked a job that, you know, I was working 60 to 80 hours a week, and, you know, I would get to these places in my life during the day that it was like, what am I doing? I have absolutely no control over my own life. I mean, really even over the things that I'm thinking because it's so consumed by this job that 99% of the time I don't even enjoy, but I'm just doing it because I have to in order to sustain my life. You know, and I think that's the thing that is a message that is so powerful that is so important to get out there um, because I think, you know, a lot of people who have these jobs, you know, or, I mean, everyone who has a job, but these people who really, it's the number one focus in their life and the thing that really controls their life the most, if they kind of just step back 
and look at it from an outside perspective, I think the realization that it really is slavery. I mean, that's all it is. It's, it's being forced to do something that you want, don't want to do in order to survive. And I think that that is, I mean, we all know that that's just the byproduct of, of a monetary system. But, you know, it's just so unfortunate that it's something that we all willingly accept every day. Did, uh, yeah, I, go ahead. No, 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 I was just going to say, it just, it just seems to, you know, by enslaving people into doing the same monotony day in and day out, it's breeding mediocrity. I mean, you always hear that, that humans say, the cliche saying of the, humans have so much potential, yet when we're forced into this structure of a society, it just, it doesn't even allow for that. It just breeds this mediocrity of people not even being able to have time to utilize their brains and the things that they can do, their creativity for a wider range of things. Oh, I totally agree with that. And I think that's one of the reasons why I, when I go after capitalists about this, I generally say incentive. <laughs> I don't have any incentive to go do the jobs that I'm doing. I am forced yeah. to do the jobs that I'm doing. Yeah. When I had incentive, I was a little kid and I didn't care about money. That's when I wanted to explore space or develop robots. You know, and those incentives, quote unquote, were taken from me because there was no way I could ever afford it. Now, yeah. um, let me bring on uh, Thunder. Did you have comments about this chapter? Yeah, that's that's an excellent chapter. I have a couple comments, rhetorical questions, if you will, and then I, a, a real question. First of all, I I find it almost sickening that there are so many people out there that scoff and look down on. Um, multi-level schemes, pyramid schemes, and pyramid schemes even to the point where they've become illegal. And yet the very system that we live in is by far, if people want to wake up and take a look at it, is in fact a giant pyramid scheme. Why is it not illegal? Um, you know, the other, the other thing I want to comment on is one of the questions that we get so often um, from people is, well, if we do away with the monetary system, uh, what will people do? Where will be the incentive? And I always pose it to them, well, look at all the things that you want to do now that you can't, that you're limited uh, because of the monetary system. You can't afford to go on a, on a two-week-long ski trip, for example, or a, a vacation or a boat cruise or whatever the case may be. Um, Again, you, you mentioned the, the buying power. If you don't have the buying power, then you're limited. And scarcity and the monetary system in and of itself limits us to being able to do a lot of the things, for me personally, that I would love to do if we didn't have the scarcity and everything had a price tag on it. And then uh, the question I want, being as you're in the political uh, realm, B, um, it, it always boggles my mind why these quote-unquote political leaders that, that uh, um, claim they want to do better for people and make things better uh, don't even have the wherewithal to sit down and read a chapter like this and go, wow, we've got to make some major changes. They, uh, Obama runs on the platform of, of real change, and yet he, he's part of the system that we want to change. So my question is, where are all these men of enlightenment and knowledge and intelligence in the political system that, uh, that want to change things, and yet the very change that we want is right there in front of them if they would just apply it? it 
it baffles well, my mind. As uh, Jacques Fresco says in Zeitgeist Addendum, um, people are not put in political offices to, office to change things, they're put there to, sh- to keep things the same. And the reason for this, and you find this out more than ever, okay, um, my opponent for Congress, Candace Miller, total neocon, uh, she does a lot of things locally to keep her constituents happy, so they're never even aware of the things that she does on a federal level, okay? Um, you know, like, for example, voting for, like, every violation of the Fourth Amendment that has ever come across her desk, you know, privacy, things of that nature are not really important to her. You know, she doesn't, um, you know, she won't vote for anything that creates any kind of timetable for Iraq. And then, lo and behold, when you look at the people who donate to her campaigns, well, who is it? It's people like Halliburton, um, you know, various uh, defense contractors, you know, and uh, generally... You know, what you're looking at at that point is that the reason why is because they can't afford to make any real changes. When a candidate gets up there and talks about change, it's the first, the first way to make sure that you never make it to any debates. My mentor, Senator Mike Gravel, the crotchety senator from Alaska, um, proponent of the National Initiative for Democracy, good friend of mine. You can look him up on YouTube. He's a little bit less known than Ron Paul um, because he was eliminated, like, right away um, because he made Hillary look kind of stupid on television and... Hillary was the golden girl, so, um, but anyway, you know, she basically, um, basically makes it very, you know, he basically made it very clear, you know, there are these things that we're doing wrong and we shouldn't be doing them, and then, like, in a, I can't remember the name of it, there was a really good documentary I watched about the media shortly after that, and it showed a timetable on how much time every individual candidate on the Democratic side got uh, as far as, um, like how much time they got to speak in one of the debates. Mike Gravel got five minutes and 30 seconds. Dennis Kucinich, uh, one of Ron Paul's, Congressman Ron Paul's on the Republican side's best friends, is a, is a Democrat, really big on civil liberties, really big on impeaching George Bush and Dick Cheney, uh, really big on anti-war, you know, and is really pro-people. And actually, um, I'll comment a little bit more on this later. I've talked about it a little bit on some of my other shows, but I believe he's actually on board for the idea of a resource-based economy on top of that. Now, you take a guy like this, and he got like five minutes and 60 seconds of a one-hour debate. Okay, Hillary Clinton got 30 minutes, okay, with Obama coming in second, Edwards coming in third. Now, tell me that it's somehow supposed to be, you know, a coincidence that, these three were the, the last three, you know, on the Democrat ticket debating one another, and then it finally came down to Obama and Clinton. And I honestly feel the turning point was actually brought up by Mike Gravel when he exposed Hillary for basically being a liar about being an anti-war candidate, because that day she had just voted in favor of a resolution that would have allowed Bush to attack Iran. Okay, and, and shortly thereafter, Obama kind of took the lead. Um, because it, there was no getting around it. She voted for it in the Senate that very day. Um, you can right. find that on YouTube. It was a very entertaining. But to come back to my point, the monetary system, just as it says in the book, is deeply rooted in the political system. And the kind of people who win political campaigns are the ones who have ads and the ones who have signs. And I can tell you, being as how I had to fund my campaign on a mere $500, mostly thanks to Mike Gravel supporters when he basically sent out an email blast to get people to give me you know, contributions, um, it, it's really hard. I mean, I was lucky to have signs. I had to use Cafe Press, which basically kind of charges the person who's giving me the money, you know, more than I would have liked, um, you know, in order to be able to have bumper stickers and things of that nature and buttons. I believe the Cafe Press is still sitting there, actually. Um, but, you know, that's what I had to do. You know, I came in third out of fourth. 
my Democratic opponent um, was actually very nice to me, and he, you know, he had been battling her for years, and he won't take money from those people. He's not a pro-war candidate. He's, you know, he wasn't for any of the stuff that Candace Miller was doing, and he talked about the bad stuff she did, and lo and behold, the people in her local district didn't really like that. Because, and I found this out myself. When I told people about the unconstitutional things she was doing, they didn't care. They did not care. In fact, they were offended that you even bring up that she did anything wrong. She's like a local hero. You know, and that's, it, it's all part of the same shebang. She basically bribed the people locally, and as a result, on the federal level, nobody knew anything she was doing. Nobody even really cared. And that's the reason why politicians can't do this. This is actually one of the reasons why I think, you know, in addition to that, um, Congressman Kucinich, I believe, supports our ideas. I also know he needs to be very careful about it if he wants to stay in office. And that's just the way of it. It's not that politicians aren't paying attention. It's that the system will go out of its way to try to destroy you, okay, if you do. You know, um, they, tried, they, they finally ran somebody against Kucinich uh, for his congressional seat because they were trying to get rid of him there. They ran people against Ron Paul. Um, they managed to make sure that um, Senator Gravel was out of the debates, you know, um, flat out just gone. And um, that's how they do these things. And it's all through money. Every last bit of it. Um, and as long as we have a monetary system, a capitalist system in particular, this is why I kind of laugh at some of the people from my previous Ron Paul activist groups who tell me, well, you know, all we need to do is go back to the Constitution and found money and all of our problems will go away. And when I ask them what they're going to do, are you going to make lobbying illegal? Are you going to make bribing politicians illegal? Well, no, we're, we're libertarians. We believe that you can do whatever you want with your money. I said, okay, well, then you at that point have made it legal for anybody to purchase any politician they want. You're not going to change anything. It's just going to be more of the same. Right. So that, did I answer your question? Yeah, you, you did. Yes, you did. And, and uh, you know, um, it, it, the soundbite that keeps coming up in my mind it, it was by George Carlin where, you know, he says, you know, when you raise selfish, ignorant children, they grow up these selfish, ignorant leaders, and that's what we get. Garbage in, garbage out. That's very true. Um, and in addition to that, if you want to listen to some really good George Carlin, ironically, it actually comes from a Ron Paul video. It's, um, uh, I think it was like Ron Paul Who Owns You or something. You can, you can Google it. Um, it'll end up showing up on YouTube. And the funny thing is, is that the whole video is actually very anti-capitalist. You know, he comes out straight out and just says, you know, there are people who own you. You don't have politicians. Politicians are irrelevant. They're there to make you feel that you have an illusion of choice. You have no choice. You have owners. Okay. And so anyway, um, that was basically it on that. I mean, now to just if I'm going to go on to my own comments about the specific subject. You know, the various things that he talks about, the fashion industry, the ability of the monetary system to convince people to buy things that they don't need, I watched another very good documentary about this subject, and it basically talked about how they managed to get women to smoke cigarettes. Um, a long time ago, it was considered very gauche for a woman to smoke cigarettes. Okay. Um, and so, essentially, they hired a psychologist, one of uh, Freud's relatives, actually, to try to figure out a way to create an ad campaign or do something that would get women to smoke cigarettes. So they basically staged a protest that made it look like these women were trying to smoke to appear to be independent, um, you know, to appear to be somehow stronger women by smoking, even though, you know, all the women who were doing this protest were paid to do it. It was essentially, it was just a stunt. And lo and behold, all of a sudden, the cigarette industry has new customers in the form of women. Okay? My mother died of lung cancer, so 
you can probably imagine I wasn't too happy about that when I learned about it. Um, it, just things like that, you know, like we talk about war profiteers, you know, how they manipulate the government to, you know, make sure that there are wars because wars are profitable. Well, we see that all the time, you know, and they're coming up with lamer excuses every time to figure out how they can mobilize our military. And so essentially, um, that's kind of my point about it, aside from the fact that you talk about the inhumanism that comes about from it because of the fact that people don't care about other people anymore. You need to think of what kind of person it takes to sign an order to lay off 100,000 workers to, just in time for the holidays to maximize holiday profits. That same guy who just, you know, with the stroke of a pen, ruined 100,000 you know, 100, Christmases is now going to go and buy his, you know, kid a new jet ski or maybe buy himself a new yacht, and it doesn't even matter to him. You know, he doesn't care about it. You know, that, that's an example of where the monetary system takes you. And, they, you know, I don't think that sound money going to the gold standard, or any of that is going to fix this. The system is broken, and the only thing that's consistent about it is that it continues to break itself. People talk about, well, if we just got rid of the Federal Reserve and went to totally sound money, everything would be fine. And then I would say, oh, you mean if we got rid of the Federal Reserve again? As in again? Because it just keeps happening, it, you know, over and over again. You watch the movie The Money Masters. It's like three hours long, and by the time you're finished with it, you'll see that this concept of unsound money just repeats itself over and over again. And if we get rid of this Federal Reserve, we're just going to be dealing with another one in three generations. You need to get rid of the money, period. The concept of it, the idea that, you know, people have the ability to hold themselves, you know, um, you know hold things that are required for, you know, living, you know, to themselves so that they can somehow profit from it is, is just something that we need to outgrow. We need to get beyond it. And not only just because of the fact that it's immoral, but because of the fact that it's impractical. We can only do it for so much longer. There's a finite amount of resources on this planet, and just between you and I, I don't really feel that I trust this capitalist system to adequately and fairly distribute these resources. <clears throat> as soon as somebody got their hands on something that everybody needed to survive, you know, and then tried to defend their rights to, you know, essentially to force other people to pay them for it, you know, it wouldn't, you know, that's, I've already seen the, ground, the foundations laid for that when I was trying to talk to people. This is one more thing I'm going to bring up. One of the uh, former Ron Paulites that I talked to when he was arguing with me about the Venus Project, he looks it over and the first thing he says is, there's no way to better yourself in this system. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, there's no way to better yourself. You know, you can't, um, you know, what if I want to buy a Learjet? And I was like, why does a Learjet make you a better person? You know, We've so been ingrained with the idea that our monetary acquisition is somehow a measurement of who we are or of what, what kind of quality we are as a person. You know, and, I, and I pointed out to him this, and he did finally give me a touche point in that I said, okay, so when you know, a guy uh, you know, enslaves people in India so that he can afford to buy his Learjet or lays off 500,000 workers, he doesn't really have to so he can buy his Learjet, has he bettered himself? Has he improved himself as a human being at that point? You know, honestly, the only thing that's stopping me from bettering myself is that I can't afford an education. You know, I can't afford to go any further than I am. And to be honest, especially here in Michigan, education isn't even really the solution anymore. We're getting to the point where it doesn't help. You're going to get out of college and find yourself just as unemployed. I have a lot of friends who are <clears throat> or working at 7-Elevens and gas stations and places like that, you know, who basically... You know, they went through college for nothing, essentially. So, right. Yeah. And 
And and another, I want right on that on that point. I wanted to coin another phrase from George Carlin, where he says, "We've gone from love is all you need to he who dies with the most toys wins." How sick is that? That's absolutely right. Now, did you have any further comments, uh, Jackie? Um, you know, I got lost between the chat and the conversation. So okay, no problem. Gonna... I heard you clearing your throat a lot. I was afraid I was talking too much. Uh, <laughs> anything further from Chris and Brian? No, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm right here with you. You know, I, I think it's interesting. We were former uh, Ron Paul supporters ourselves, and, you know, then we were introduced to uh, the Venus Project, and it kind of changed our entire perspective in a lot of ways, but, you know, I find it interesting that that individual commented with that, you know, it seems that, you know, being here at the Venus Project and seeing, you know, a lot of the emails that come in here every day, you know, a lot of people who are even really interested in this direction and have actually spent time learning something about it, there still seems to be a pattern of people asking questions with the assumption that the mindset and the values of today will still exist in a Venus project type future in a resource-based society. And I mean, it's really, you know, they ask all these questions that it's all about, you know, who will make decisions and what if people want the bigger house or want the more cars. And, you know, it's all based on this mindset and the value system that we have today. You know, and, and that's one of the things that, you know, we think is so important to get out there is, is that sort of value system uh, shift that will have to take place in order for a resource-based uh, system to exist. I mean, we'll, we will all be thinking completely different if we were in a resource-based system other than a monetary system. Well, and I think we'd all be thinking very different if uh, if people understood that it was environment that 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 caused the that caused people to behave the way they do. If people really understood that that was the truth they would start saying things differently because people tend to uh, make the excuse that, oh, well, humans are just greedy and, oh, well, humans are just selfish and all of these things. And it's, it's like, well, I believe first they have to be convinced that the truth is these, these are just byproducts of the monetary system, like being right. greedy and feeling this insecurity that you're not going to have something in a week or in a month. Well, if that security was there, that you would always have the food to get to, and there would always be, because everybody on the earth was being considerate of all the well-being of all of humanity, then you wouldn't have that need to hoard anything and be so greedy. And so I feel like really that's the initial step in, in getting people to understand that, because there's this huge projection of, of this mindset, like Brian was saying, this mindset and, and the, the problems of today into this, they, they project that onto what the future would be like in a resource-based system. And it's, it's really breaking that down and explaining that that wouldn't be, I feel like, is the initial step. Yeah, definitely. That's right. I, That's I wanted right. to make a, a comment Go on ahead. the monetary system um, that I, I just didn't really uh, hear mentioned, but I just kind of wanted to point it out about wage slavery, which is just so apropos with my... Uh, user name because um, you know I'm, I'm right there with the, you know the rest of the world you know indebted for the rest of my life um, you know I can't you know afford even the, ne the necessities of you know earning my daily bread which is my vehicle I mean I can't I don't make enough where I could ever put down enough money to 
to buy it just outright and have a reliable vehicle. And even when I, you buy them brand new and you, you go in the hawk for, you know, 10 years, six, seven years, you know, it still doesn't make it. <laughs> so, no, that's um, definitely right. And because of the planned obsolescence, just to further add to your point, then I'll shut up. But, was that no, you, but my, my point about the monetary system is that what it does is it breeds a sense of indebtedness and obligation in people. Because honestly, I mean, to me, and for a lot of people out there, I'm young, unless you're like a... You're breaking up on us. Charity. There we go. I, am I breaking up? Okay. Yeah, just a little bit. You're good. Nobody now. likes to take in charity. Everybody likes, and we live in this mindset where we're meant to spend for ourselves. We're meant to do for ourselves. We're meant to contribute. And our daily bread, our house, and everything was our reward for our contribution. So this monetary system psychologically sets in people a tremendous sense of responsibility and obligation that is totally artificial. Yep. It's completely artificial, and and that's you know one of the things I just really wanted to point out that I didn't see mm-hmm. anyone really going into. Well, definitely, there's also a psychological effect about it that's that um, Anton Robert Anton Wilson wrote a book called Prometheus Rising, and one of the things that he brings up is he calls money bio survival tickets, as in your brain now is going to react to this thing that's required for its security. And you end up like, it ends up just being this, it takes on a whole other aspect to you. It's almost like a god. You know, like a psychological prison almost. Exactly. And, you know, you're scared of it. You know, and like when they say, for example, that, you know, like when the, in the monetary system, they, they say that, you know, like stress is what creates child abuse. I don't abuse my children, but I can tell you that the stress of not being able to provide for them the way I would like to, you know, or the times when I can't even make my bills and I'm worried I'm going to lose my kids, you know, when, when they show up at that point and they're like, Daddy, I, you know, I need this or I need that, it becomes really hard not to snap at them. And then I understand what they're talking about, you know, that the stress that builds up from this does create those neuroses and people who don't want to see that, you know, well, especially like the capitalists are usually the ones who say everything's fine. You know, those are the ones that say there's nothing wrong with the system. Or they tell you to go take these pills and they're going to make everything all better. Exactly. And when you're talking about your car, one of the things I wanted to comment on is it's like most of my friends, you go get a loan on a car, and then by the time you manage to pay the stupid thing off, it's time to get another car. You know, That's exactly how it you're, works. You're perpetually enslaved. It's like you're a slave to your stuff. Okay, now we have a couple callers, so I'm going to bring them on the air. I'm going to start with a uh, caller from the 713 area code. You are on the air. Did you have questions? Hi. Uh, no, hi, Neil. This is Brian. Uh, yeah, I just couldn't agree more with... Uh, with exactly what you're talking about here, with this whole mindset and and, and the, this this false sense of uh, of uh, you know our, our identity is is attached to our material wealth, our financial wealth, and, and that 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 whole type of mentality. I mean, that's what's wrong with the world today. You know, I just got finished watching a, a pretty new movie from the guys that made the corporation. I, I think it's new. Uh, it's called um, Blue Gold. World Water Wars. Have you seen that yet? Anybody seen that yet? No, I haven't. Okay, I highly recommend it. No, I haven't. It. What, what's the name of it? It's called Blue Gold. Can you say it again? Blue Gold. Blue Gold. You said it's yeah. about American Water Wars? Like, yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. It's talking about the uh, the clean water shortage, isn't it? Yeah, it's called War- yeah, it's World Water Wars. But it's about it's exactly about that. And uh, it discusses things like you know, the bushes are now heavily invested in water. And people are stealing water from all over the place. And in the process, 
not only are they destroying you know people and societies, but it, by damming up the waters and by not letting the not letting the the natural flow of of rivers take its natural course, uh, we are we are desertifying the, the the earth, and it can be fixed with proper technology. I think you know what what we have to do in order to fix the world. Here's another crux of the monetary system. What we have to do in order to fix the world cannot be done in a monetary system. It would cost too much. It's it's, it's monetarily impossible to fix the problems. So okay. I think that's another thing that we should recognize. I'm sorry. I totally agree with that, and not only that, but these water wars. This is a really, really big and serious issue. I mean, I didn't Absolutely. see that particular movie, but I saw Flow for the Love of Water, and I mean, we're talking about being wage slaves now. Wait till they control the water. Now we're water slaves. You know, that's something. This is that, life or death. That was something that was brought up in Addendum was that you know the more they pollute, the more money they make, really having to be able to provide solutions really important that we as individuals, as human beings, need to fight and stand. You cannot privatize water. I mean, you were talking about people's survival at a fundamental level. Well, I don't know where you all live. I'm in in Houston, Texas. And uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, see, the, the water in Houston, Texas is privatized by Suez, a French company, a French corporation. I didn't know that. Okay. So, but all of the water in the United States is privatized. Generally, to these the, the main corporations in this whole water business are French. But, uh, but uh, for for instance, in Atlanta, Georgia, they had to they have to boil the water, the tap water, because of the bacteria and all that stuff. It's in the tap water, and it's privatized. So you're paying for it, and it's not water. even clean. But what we're what I'm talking about is all these things that, that that we're talking about, like Bechtel in Bolivia, and uh, and and, just, and what's happening in these third world nations. It's 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 not just third world nations. It's right here. If you live in America, it's right here at home, and it's in every city. And then you know we have the whole fluoridation of the water problem. And if you've looked into that, I mean it's just ridiculous. Right. You know this whole putting fluoride in water. The, uh, the 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 main uh, the main compounds in uh, in Prozac are are, are fluorides uh, are fluoride compounds. Rat poison. So, um, the yeah, fact that yeah, the, rat poison. the Russians gave it to their prisoners in Siberia and the Nazis gave it to the prisoners in the internment camps to make them uh, docile. More docile. Yep, more docile. Yeah. Exactly. Um, all right, uh, Brian. I'm going to take my other caller here. Thank you for calling in. Go ahead and make your last statement. Well, I just think it's important for, for people to not just be educated with the Zeitgeist movies, but to be educated at, at, you know, to these, uh, there are a lot of other documentaries that are, that are uh, very well made, and, uh, and the, the problem is so incredibly serious that it needs, it needs you know, the attention of, of, of everybody. So no, I, I definitely think this movement needs to address that problem and needs to join in with a lot of the other groups. Yes, definitely. Um, and also, I mean, just to comment on that, I'm going to take a moment to plug this, but I will be doing VTV again. That's actually where my name comes from. When I was part of the Ron Paul movement, I did a radio, or it's a video show actually using Justin TV and Mogulus and similar things. And I will be doing that again, actually. I'm going to be, basically, I'll, I'm going to set up, try to set up a schedule, tell people ahead of time, and I'm going to be playing really important documentaries 
And I'm going to open the phone lines to see if people want to you know, call in and comment and talk about it. There will be a chat room attached just like there is here for blog talk. So be sure to look on the Zeitgeist forums for future episodes of VTV. And uh, thank you, Brian. I'm going to take our other caller. Thank you for calling in. Okay, caller, uh, what I want to, it says 111, which leads me to the conclusion that you're on a Skype phone. Uh, you're on the air. Yes, uh, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Yeah, I'm really enjoying uh, what I'm hearing. However, um, I'd like to pose um, a question. It's, um, it seems that we have a, a heck of an obstacle to overcome. I mean, there's a mindset in the world that this, system that we're living in is the only system that works and uh, you know there of course there are a, a percentage such as ourselves of people that know that this percentage is is bound and doomed to fail which it is it's failing as we're talking but you know you have take for instance the population of China these people are just coming off the ground and starting to move from bicycles to cars and they're like bought into the capitalistic society and the system, and I just I just see this as a as a heck of an obstacle. Not to mention those people that who would, would pull the strings to this system, such as those that go to Bilderberg meetings and Bohemian Groves and these type of uh, secret uh, meetings where they get together and they decide the future of the planet or the future of mankind. They are not only maniacal and psychotic, but they're murderous. And I see these, I see these people as not willing and wanting to step aside so easily. So my question kind of hinders on, you know, I'm the one, I'm get on it in the chat room, and I'm just wondering how much of spinning our wheels are we doing? I mean, this, this is definitely what is needed, but I think there's a, a heck of an education process that has to be overcome. We, we have to overcome the mainstream media, not to mention those that would be called our leaders, our political leaders. I mean, there's a heck of a, a, a cavern there to jump over. Well, um, let me field some of this, being as I'm a spokesman for the Venus Project. Okay, the first thing that you need to understand is that um, Mr. Fresco believes that the system is going to fail. Okay, he believes that yeah. generally that's, that's what the next step is. Um, he believes that the, the United States is probably going to go to fascism. Um, for being a previous, you know, candidate for Congress and seeing a trend in the way our civil liberties are being eroded, I would only say that I agree with that. It's, it's probably going to be happening very soon. Uh, as soon as the economic system fails, it is generally the case that a government will switch to fascism to try to control the people that are doing their best to try to survive in the failing system. Okay, now... His belief at that point essentially is that that is when eventually that, was, that system will be overthrown like every other you know, uh, fascist system is, and then people are going to be looking for a solution, and they're either going to try to reboot capitalism or they're going to become socialists or communists, or they could try this, which I feel is far more, you know, it basically takes the best of all of those things and then improves them and then essentially makes them practical, okay, and that, that's where I see it, okay? As a former capitalist and somebody, you know, who has studied communism and socialism and has friends who are socialists, like actually Brian Moore, the Socialist Party's last presidential candidate, was on my show several times. Good guy. Um, and what I would bring up, though, is just that um, that's the first part of it is that, it, yeah, do we have a big, you know, a big undertaking? Absolutely we do. 
But, you know, when you look at the founding fathers deciding to develop their new system of government, they had a serious, you know, undertaking. Um, you know, uh, there were other people, you know, who've had to do the same thing. You know, the only difference is, is that we are essentially trying to create, you know, a, a revolution of consciousness. We are trying to, you know, encourage yeah. people to understand that these scientific options are there. That is why I suggest, for example, I started a, a thread on the Zeitgeist forums. I strongly advise you check it out because, sadly, it didn't really get a lot of views. Only like 50 people looked at it. But it's open source ecology. There is a group in uh, Europe right now that is building a sustainable um, society, and it basically they want to create it so that if you have $10,000, you can take care of 30 people indefinitely. It uses hydroponic farming. It uses solar panels. Um, and it's designed so that anybody can do it. And that's an example of the kind of transitions that you can make. When you want to crash a monetary system, you want to get rid of its power. And one of the ways to do that is just to make it so you don't need to use it anymore. Now, sure. I will point out um, that Mr. Fresco does not advocate trying to sabotage the system. But there's nothing wrong with you going off the grid and becoming as, you know, no, basically as independent as possible. Because that weakens the monetary system as a whole anyway. When you're not consuming anymore because you don't have to, I mean, the kinds of quality food that they grew in these hydroponic farms, they made lettuce that was literally like the leaves were like, you know, two feet long or something like that. I remember looking at it. And I don't even, you know, lettuce is not my favorite thing, but I looked at it. It just looked so vibrant and alive. It was just, you know, beautiful lettuce. <laughs> it sounds silly. But I was like, man, you know, and they, they took that to, a, a, they took that to a, a, like a farm meeting and they sold it. They just sold out on it because everybody wanted their lettuce. They basically have a system that allows them to participate in the capitalist system as little as possible to be able to sustain themselves and then eventually just get out of it entirely. You know, there are ways to do it. And is it a huge undertaking? Absolutely it is. Will the people in power not want to give up their power? You're right, they won't. But we can get rid of that power if we make ourselves independent of what they have over us. Right now, the reason they have so much power over you is that if you don't have a job, you can't take care of yourself. Okay, that's right. And if you know, if you create a system where you stop spending your money on the crap that they convince you to spend it on, okay, people spend entirely too much time, you know, watching American Idol and other stuff. You know, and they basically don't spend any time to thinking about how to take care of themselves. And unfortunately, the system is not going to be able to sustain the American lifestyle for much longer. You're either going to be third world, you know, you could live like the Amish, you know, really low tech. Or you can use technology to make yourself independent one household at a time, and maybe eventually into smaller communities, and maybe eventually into whole cities. That, that's the way that you could do it. You know, do we know that there's going to be trouble? Yeah, there's going to be trouble, but we've got to try. We've really no, got to I, I try. Think, um, I think what you, um, the points you made were very clear, and it's also encouraging that there are community, or there is a community like that in Europe. I'm wondering if we've got any communities like that in America and if there's the possibility of even creating or starting something like that in the near future. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Um, and I hope that we answered your question adequately. Did anybody else have anything they wanted to add to that? Yeah, I, I actually did. You know, I think that I agree that the task that we have as far as you know, overcoming the power elite and the mainstream media and both which really all of it goes back to the power elite. You know, the, the greatest arsenal that we have is that the system as we know it is starting to crash. I mean, it's falling apart around us on a global level. And, you know, Doc Fresco has been saying for decades now that that is exactly what's going to lead to this kind of a shift. 
and here we are witnessing it firsthand. You know, I think what would have been impossible 10 years ago to overcome, you know, the power elite is becoming more and more possible every day. And that's why I don't think it's just spinning our wheels because as long as we're out there educating people, I think that this system is going to crash in such a way that people are going to eventually, on a massive level, be out there searching for something new and different. And I think that's exactly what this is all about. I totally agree. Um, did you have anything to add, Thunder? No, uh, you guys are doing such a fantastic job. I'm actually enjoying listening more than more than talking, which you know when I get on a rant, I, I get off and and, and go running. <laughs> um, no, I, I I'm enjoying listening to you guys. All have valid points, and uh, I have nothing to add at this point. Okay. Anything further from you, Jack? Jack. Um. Um. I agree with you know a lot of what VTV said and and um. Ryan, and, uh, you know, the only thing I wanted, you know, wanted to add that you really kind of need to stress to people is just because this is the only system we know, it doesn't mean it's the only system that works. And honestly, if you really get people to look at it and evaluate it and analyze it, I mean, the question is, is it working? I mean, it's not. I mean, we see it's rampant with corruption. It's rampant with problems. So just because it's the only system we know, it's not necessarily mean it works. I gotta go. Hold on. No problem. You know, and actually that brings me back to something when it comes to the illusion, um, the illusion of freedom that Mr. Fresco talks about in his book. You know, you think that you're free if you have your, you know, your freedom to spend your money any way you want, et cetera, et cetera. And capitalists actually think of people like us as being people that are taking the freedom away. But the fact of the matter is. The monetary system guarantees that you are in some way enslaved to somebody else. It, there, there's no other way around it. He, he really hit it home in Zeitgeist Addendum when he said, you know, you, the moment you punch that clock, you walk into a dictatorship. You know, um, and I think that uh, people from all sides of this really need to look at it. I mean, you know, the, also the issue of, like, eliminating labor. This is something that the, the communists never grasped, was that you can't expect that the system's going to work, that everybody's just going to donate their time just because, because that doesn't work either. You know, I mean, it, it will if there's a sustainable end to it. I'm sure that people will be interested in that. But, you know, the, the communist system has its own problems. The socialist system has its own problems. And, and they all pretty much, you know, amount to the fact, like, the socialist system depends on the taxing the people you know, if your monetary system is crumbling, then you can't afford to pay for the socialist programs. You know, and it, essentially, you know, it, the whole thing crumbles down. If you have money, if you have an attitude that allows you to think that you should exchange resources in a limited fashion and that people should not be, you know, essentially, uh, people should not be entitled to be able to survive, you're inevitably going to end up with people like this. And the funny thing is, is they'll tell you that it's fair. The capitalists tell you that this is the most fair way to do it. Let's have... 40%, you know, basically, you know, like, what was it, like 5%? They talk about it in Zeitgeist. Uh, you know, the people in the world have 40% of the world's wealth. Explain to me how that's fair. That doesn't make any sense at all. You know, and so essentially, you know, that, that, that's basically you know, my major point about that. And I think that we've done really great on this uh, chapter. Um, and uh, I'm going to, once again, uh, thank you, caller, for calling in. I see that you're no longer on the switchboard now. Um, and uh, once again, to our listeners, we do have a chat room that is open. Um, and in addition to that, you can call at 
347. That's 347 945 7747. If you have any questions or comments about the book that we're reading, um, I'm going to be continuing my reading here in just a second. Uh, you'll have to give me a moment. Um, and uh, then we will get started again, and we'll be back to our discussion. I want to thank everybody again for listening, and I want to point out that uh, V Radio is still accepting donations for next month. Um, things are really, really limited around here, so I'm doing my best to keep everything going. Um, I know that this sounds pretty pathetic, but the reality of the matter is, is if I didn't get donations last month, I wouldn't even be on the Internet to do the work that I'm doing right now. Um, so that's essentially, you know, if you guys want to donate to it, I believe there's a link to it provided in the description of the show. There's also a link to my chip-in on my MySpace, and if you happen to be a Venus Project or Zeitgeist fan, do not hesitate to add me to your MySpace. So give me just a second, and we will get started again. All right, I'm sorry about that delay, and um, let's get started here on to Chapter 7. Sounds like the natives are a little restless at your house, too, to, tonight, Neil, huh? <laughs> yeah, I take it you heard the kids. <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I was giggling about that. That was kind of cute. Yeah, they tend to run up and down the, uh, the hallway quite a bit um, whenever they're upset about anything, for example. Um, <laughs> But uh, I used to joke around about that, actually, because anytime you send my daughter to a room, she insists on running the whole way. And I have this really long hallway down the middle of my home. And we were thinking, you know, we could get her to be a great track star if we were to say to put like a treadmill under the floor and just send her to a room. You know, she'd be working on that for a few hours. But okay. All right, everybody. Um, we're going to start back to uh, Chapter 7, When Money Becomes Irrelevant. In this chapter, we discuss a straightforward approach to the redesign of culture in which war, poverty, hunger, debt, and human suffering are viewed as not only avoidable, but totally unacceptable. This new social design seeks to eliminate the underlying causes of our problems, but they can't be eliminated within the framework of the present monetary and political establishment. The major corporation's first concern is profit. This narrow concern will ultimately result in the demise of our economic system. If the monetary system continues, we face ever-increasing technological unemployment as seen in downsizing. We need fewer people with greater skills to support production. Everyone else becomes irrelevant except as consumers. It is only a matter of time before automation replaces people in almost all areas, resulting in a lack of purchasing power to buy the goods turned out. Even in an expanding market, this will bring about massive and unmanageable problems. During the 1930s, at the height of the Great Depression, the Roosevelt administration enacted new legislation designed to minimize revolutionary tendencies and to address unemployment by providing jobs through the WPA, CC camps, NRA, transient camps, and federal arts projects. Ultimately, however, it was World War II that pulled the U.S. out of the worldwide recession. If we permit current conditions to take their course, we will soon be faced with another international recession of even greater magnitude. At the beginning of World War II, the U.S. had only 600 first-class fighting aircraft, but we rapidly increased production to 90,000 planes per year. Did we have enough money to pay for the implements of war? No, there was not enough money or gold, but we did have more than enough resources. Available resources and personnel, not funding, provide the production and efficiency required to win the war. 
We live in a culture that seems to work collectively only in a response to a crisis. Only in times of war or national disaster do we move beyond money and apply the necessary resources and interdisciplinary teams to meet a threat. Rarely, sorry about that, lost my place. Rarely, if ever, do we employ concerted efforts to find workable solutions to social problems. If we applied the same efforts of scientific mobilization towards social betterment as we do during war or disaster, large-scale results could be achieved in a relatively short time. More time and effort must go into the collection of experimental evidence to support innovative social arrangements. The Earth is abundant with resources. Our practice of rationing resources through monetary methods is irrelevant and counterproductive to the well-being of people. Modern society has highly advanced technologies and can easily provide more than enough for a high standard of living by all, or for all by implementing a resource-based economy. Simply stated, a resource-based economy uses existing resources rather than money and provides an equitable distribution of goods and services in a humane and efficient manner for the entire population. It is a system in which all natural, man-made, machine-made, and synthetic resources are available without the use of money, credit, barter, or any other form of debt. A resource-based economy uses resources from the land and sea, physical equipment, and industrial plants to enhance the lives of the total population. In an economy based on resources rather than money, we can easily produce the necessities of life and provide a high standard of living for all. In a resource-based economy, the world's resources are held as the common heritage of all people, eventually outgrowing the need for artificial boundaries that separate people. This is the unifying imperative. We must emphasize that this approach to global governance has nothing whatsoever um, whatever in common with the present aims of an elite to, fo of an elite to form a world government which thems with themselves and large corporations at the helm and the vast majority of the population subservient to them. Our vision of globalization empowers each person on the planet to be the best they can be and to not live in subjugation to a corporate governing body. All social systems, regardless of political philosophy, religious beliefs, or social customs, ultimately depend upon natural resources, including clean air and water, arable land, and the technology and personnel to maintain a high standard of living. This can be accomplished through the intelligent and humane application of science and technology. The real wealth of any nation lies in its developed and potential resources and the people who work toward the elimination of scarcity and the creation of a more humane society. The use of large-scale computer-based systems will assist in defining the parameters of a resource-based economy and all construction projects will conform to environmental requirements. Over-exploitation will be unnecessary and surpassed. As of this writing, NASA has announced the use of a powerful parallel supercomputer to evaluate the global impact of national and human-induced induced activities on climate. A resource-based economy would use technology to overcome scarce resources and utilize renewable sources of energy. It would computerize and automate manufacturing and inventory and design safe, energy-efficient cities which provide universal health care and a better education. It would generate a new incentive system based on human and environmental concerns. Unfortunately, science and technology have been diverted from these ends for reasons of self-interest and monetary gain through the planned obsolescence, sometimes referred to as conscious withdrawal of efficiency. It is an irony that the U.S. Department of Agriculture, whose function is to conduct research into ways of achieving higher crop yields, actually pays farmers not to produce at full capacity while many go hungry. 
We place signs next to a highway saying, caution, slippery when wet, when a more effective approach would be to design roads with abrasive strips that would not be slippery in the first place. We purify water systems by dumping chemicals into them, despite their continuing buildup. There was a problem of dumping waste into rivers and waterways, waterways because it is cheaper than more responsible disposal methods. Industries failed to install electrostatic, electrostatic precipitators at their plants to prevent particular matter from being released into the atmosphere from industrial, industrial smokestacks, and that technology has been available for over 75 years. The monetary system does not always apply known methods that would best serve people in the environment. I'm going to take a super quick moment here to point something out from my own personal experience. My brother actually brought this to my attention, but um, at one point there was a company that was dumping to, um, drums of toxic waste and essentially just tallying off the fines because it was actually less expensive to pay the fines than it was to dispose of the toxic waste on purpose. Now tell me if the monetary system is a good motive and incentive. Anyway, I continue. In our search for more, we have blinded ourselves to our personal responsibility for challenging these absurdities. A resource-based society considers all equal shareholders of Earth. I'm sorry. A resource-based society considers us, considers us all equal shareholders of Earth. We are responsible both for the planet and for our relationship with each other. In a resource-based economy, the human condition is a prime concern with technology subordinate. In, a, each, in, a, in such an economy, production is accomplished totally by machines and the products are available to all. Sorry about that, folks. <laughs> my Skype is also my actual phone. Um, now, where was I at? Okay. <laughs> These people are persistent. Hold on just a second. Sorry about that. Um, now, in a resource-based economy, the human condition is a prime concern with technology subordinate. In such an economy, production is accomplished totally by machines and the products are available to all. The concepts of work and earning a living become irrelevant. The focus is on having a life in a money economy when the human consequences of automation are neglected. It renders the advance of science and technology meaningless except to a select few. To better understand a resource-based economy, consider this. If all money in the world suddenly disappeared, the topsoil, factories, and other resources were left intact, we could build anything we chose to build and fulfill any human need. It is not money that people need, but access to the necessities of life without having to appeal to a government bureaucracy or any other agency. In a resource-based economy, money is irrelevant. What's required are the resources and manufacturing and distribution of the products. In a monetary system, purchasing power is not related to the capacity to produce goods. Hold on just a moment. I apologize again. Um, I apologize for that, folks. Just a little bit of a technical difficulty there. Now. As I was saying, in a monetary system, purchasing power is not related to the capacity to produce goods and services. For example, in a recession, there are computers and store windows and automobiles and car lots, but people do not have the purchasing power to buy them. The rules of the monetary system are obsolete and create needless strife, deprivation, and human suffering. 
In today's culture of profit, we do not produce goods based on human need. We do not build houses based on population needs. We do not grow food based solely on demand, nor do we practice medicine solely to cure diseases. Industry's major motivation is profit. Consider the automobile. To service conventional automobiles, we must remove a lot of hardware before we get to the engine. Why are they so complicated? Simply because ease of repair is not a concern of the manufacturers. They do not have to pay to service the car. An entire subset of the automotive industry is devoted to making a profit from the repair of cars and trucks. If manufacturers were responsible for the cost of repairs, cars and trucks would be built very differently with different materials, enhanced performance, and modular components easily disengaged for getting at the engine. Such construction would be typical in a resource-based economy. Many of the components in the automobile would be easily detachable to save time and energy in the rare cases of repair because no one profits from servicing automobiles or any other products. Quality, simplicity of servicing, and technological upgrade would be primary design drivers. Eventually, through the development of magnetically suspended bearings, lubrication and wear could be eliminated entirely. There will also be proximity devices on all vehicles to prevent collisions. Automotive transport units engineered in this way would be service-free for many years. This same thinking would be applied to all products. Industrial devices would be designed for recycling, but, but there would be much less recycling when we build household materials and products of superior quality designed not to wear or break down. A resource-based world economy would also involve all-out efforts to develop new clean and renewable sources of energy, geothermal, controlled fusion, solar, photovol photovoltaic, wind, wave, and tidal power, even fuel from the oceans. We could eventually have energy in unlimited quality that, would, that could power civilization for thousands of years. A resource-based economy must also redesign cities, transportation systems, and industrial plants, making them energy efficient, clean, and able to serve the needs of all people. Shipping and transportation systems would maintain a balanced load economy, being fully utilized in both directions of travel. There would be no empty trucks, trains, or transport units on return trips. There would be no freight trains stored in yards dependent on the business cycle for their use. What else would a resource-based economy mean? Technology, intelligently applied, conserves energy, reduce waste, and provides more leisure time. With automated inventory on a global scale, we can balance production and distribution. Plan obsolescence would be unnecessary and non-existent in a resource-based economy. Packaging systems would be standardized, requiring less storage space and easy handling. Nutritious and healthy food would be available. To eliminate waste from impermanent products such as newsprint, books, and magazines, a light-sensitive film can be placed over a monitor or TV to produce a temporary printout of the news or other information. This material will hold the information until it is deleted. This would conserve millions of pounds of paper and be a major part of the recycling process. Eventually, most paperwork, including the transfer of money, would be eliminated. As we outgrow the need for professions based on the monetary system, such as lawyers, bankers, insurance agents, advertisers, salespersons, and stockbrokers, a considerable amount of waste will be eliminated. Considerable amounts of energy would be saved by eliminating the duplication of products such as tools, eating utensils, pots, pans, vacuum cleaners, and those 300 wrenches, wrenches mentioned earlier. Choice is good, 
But instead of hundreds of different manufacturing plants and all the paperwork and personnel required to turn out similar products, only a few of the highest quality would be needed to serve the entire population. Our only shortage is the lack of creative thought and intelligence in ourselves and our elected leaders to solve these problems. The most valuable, untapped resource today is human ingenuity. With the elimination of debt, fear of losing one's job will no longer be a threat. This, combined with education and how to relate to people in a more meaningful way, could reduce mental and physical stress, leaving us free to explore and develop our abilities. If the thoughts of eliminating money still troubles you, consider this. If a group of people with gold, diamonds, and money were stranded on an island that had no resources, their wealth would be irrelevant to their survival. It is only when resources are scarce that money can be used to control their distribution. One could not, for example, sell the air we breathe or water abundantly flowing down a mountain stream. Although air and water are valuable in abundance, they cannot be sold. Money is only important in a society when resources for survival are rationed and people accept money as an exchange medium for the scarce resources. Money is a social convention, an agreement, if you will. It is neither a natural resource nor does it represent one. It is not necessary for survival unless we have been conditioned to accept it as such. What will motivate people? Some people claim the free enterprise system and its competition creates incentive. This is only partially true. It also creates greed, embezzlement, corruption, crime, stress, economic hardship, and insecurity. Most major developments in science and technology resulted from the efforts of very few individuals working independently and often against great opposition. Goddard, Galileo, Darwin, Tesla, Edison, Einstein, etc. These individuals were generally concerned with solving problems and improving processes rather than with financial gain. Despite our belief that money creates incentive, we seldom trust those whose sole motivation is monetary gain. This can be said about doctors, lawyers, entertainers, and those in just about any field. If the basic necessities are available, what will motivate us? Quite simply, the things we care about. Children reared in affluent environments in which food, clothing, shelter, nutrition, education, and much more are provided still demonstrate incentive and initiative. On the other hand, overwhelming evidence supports the idea that malnutrition, unemployment, minimum wages, poor health, lack of direction, lack of education, homelessness, no appreciation of one's efforts, poor role models, poverty, and bleak prospects for the future can and do destroy incentive and the drive to achieve. One aim of our new social design is to encourage a new incentive system that is no longer directed toward the shallow and self-centered goals of wealth, property, and power. These new incentives would encourage people toward self-fulfillment and creativity. The elimination of scarcity, the protection of the environment, and most of all, concern for their fellow human beings. The air we breathe, clean water, sunshine, forests, and nature, for the most part, support life without change. I'm sorry, without charge. <coughs> sorry. With good nutrition in a highly productive, humane society, people will evolve a new incentive system. Without the need to work just to survive, there would be enough new things to explore and invent that the notion of people sitting around doing nothing seems absurd. The lack of incentive we see in our present culture happens when people dare not dream of a future that seems unattainable. Each phase of social evolution creates its own incentive system. In primitive times, an incentive to hunt for food was generated by hunger. The incentive to create a javelin or a bow and arrow evolved as a process to support the hunt. With the advent of the agrarian, 
I'm sorry, agrarian revolution, the motivation for hunting was reduced, and incentives shifted to the cultivation of crops with supporting implements, the domestication of animals, and protection of personal property. In a civilization where people receive food, medical care, education, and housing, incentives will again change appropriately. People will be free to explore their other possibilities and lifestyles that were not anticipated in earlier times. The nature of incentive and motivation depends on many factors. We know, for example, that an individual's physical and mental health directly relate to their level of motivation and productivity. We also know that healthy babies are naturally inquisitive. In India and other areas of greater scarce, great scarcity, many are motivated against the accumulation of wealth and material property, and they renounce worldly goods. Under those conditions, this may not be too difficult. This contrasts with the Western culture's emphasis on the accumulation of material wealth. Yet, which is more valid? Your answer to this question depends upon your culturally determined value system. Some people overcome the shortcomings of their environment despite a lack of positive reinforcements. They provide their own self-reinforcement, are able to see improvements in whatever they are engaged in, and achieve an, intrins an intrinsic sense of accomplishment. Their self-reinforcement does not depend on the approval of others. Children who do require the approval of a group tend to have a low self-esteem. Children who do not depend on a group approval acquire a sense of self-esteem by improving their performance. Throughout history, many innovators, artists, and inventors have been ruthlessly exploited, ridiculed, and abused by receiving very little financial incentive. Yet they endured such hardship because they were motivated to learn and to discover new ways of doing things. On the other hand, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, and Beethoven, to name a few of history's most creative minds, received the generous sponsorship of wealthy patrons, but this did not kill their incentive in the least. On the contrary, these individuals strove to reach new heights of creativity, perseverance, and individual accomplishment. Creativity is often its own motivation. This is a difficult concept to grasp because most of us have been brought up with a set of notions about the way we ought to think and behave. These are based upon ancient ideas that are irrelevant today. Some primitive cultures on remote islands in the South Pacific have access to all the food they require, and also to clean water and air. There is probably no question that most of them are better adjusted than many in, so in the so-called civilized world. There is no evidence demonstrating that unlimited access to the necessities of life diminishes incentive. It has often been said that, that war spurs creativity. This deliberately falsified concept is no basis in fact. It is the increased government financing of war industries that helps develop so many new materials and inventions. There is no question a saner society would create a more constructive incentive system if our knowledge of what shapes human motivation was applied. Experimental psychologists have shown that environment plays a major role in shaping behavior and studies. I'm sorry, behavior and values. If constructive behavior provides appropriate rewards during early childhood, then a child is motivated to repeat the rewarded behavior provided the reinforcement meets the individual needs of the child. For example, a football given to a child whose interest is botany and not football would not seem like a reward from the child's point of view. It is unfortunate that many individuals in society today are not rewarded for creative behavior. In a resource-based economy, motivation and incentive will be encouraged through recognition of and concern for the needs of individuals. This means providing the environment, educational facilities, good nutrition, healthcare, warmth, love, and security that people require. Love and extensionality, or extensionality. 
For centuries, love has been a dominant word in our vocabulary. The definition varies so much today that the word has become almost meaningless. Love is subject to many different interpretations, most of them irrelevant to the behavior associated with it. Perhaps the word love may one day be redefined in a more relevant terms, such as our being existential, existential to one another. What is, it, what is being existential? Our arms and hands enable us to pick up and rotate objects and to view them from many different positions. Our arms and hands are extensional devices, along with our eyes, ears, nose, and the rest of our physical body. When a single individual builds a log cabin, it may take a long time to complete. With the help of several neighbors, the job can be completed in a short amount of time. Neighbors become extensional to this individual. The same is true of an entire community that acts in supportive manner towards each other. In the physical sciences, a structural engineer must work with a metallurgist to improve the strength and quality of structural materials. The two, and, the two and their skills, their teamwork, are genuinely extensional. The physical sciences are the closest approach to genuine extensionality. Rather than being directed at a single individual, genuine extensionality serves all people equally. For instance, when contaminated water is purified, it benefits any person who uses the process. Vaccinating children to prevent a disease is not only extensional to the individual, but also to almost everyone else from whom they are in contact. Identifying conditions responsible for a disease is extensional and beneficial to all people, regardless of their personal values and philosophy. When different nations are share technology intelligently, it is extensional to all people, regardless of independent beliefs and national interests. Corporate systems, however, chiefly benefit owners and shareholders. When inventions serve the needs of all people, they will truly be extensional. Knowing the difference between governments and people who merely verbalize good intentions as distinct from those who display actual extensionality is essential to advancing civilization both physically and intellectually. When a bank lends money to an individual, there is a benefit, but it comes at a cost called debt and obligation. Genuine extensionality does not exact a toll. Extensionality, at its most basic, is an act of kindness one does without the debt being incurred by the other person. The more people become extensional to one another, the richer the civilization and the interaction between individuals become. In the future, instead of asking, do I love this person, one might identify the specific areas of extensionality that one shares with them. Would all the people in such a cybernated society be uniform? Yes, in some ways they would. For example, everyone would understand the importance of extending maximum courtesy to all nations and to one another. They would share an intense curiosity for all that is new and challenging. With better understanding of people, could possess a flexibility of outlook unknown in previous times, free of bigotry and prejudice. In addition, the people of this new society would care for their fellow human beings and about the protection, maintenance, and stewardship of Earth's natural environment. Everyone, regardless of race, color, or creed, would have equal access to the amenities that this innovative culture could supply. Something for nothing. Some people question the morality of receiving something for nothing. Once when I was speaking at a college, a student expressed opposition to the idea of getting something for nothing. I asked if he would answer a personal question. When he replied yes, I asked him, are you paying your way through school or are your parents? He admitted his parents were. I pointed out that he that if he really did believe people should not receive something for nothing, and in the event of death, he would prefer his inheritance go to the Heart or Cancer Fund rather than to him. Needless to say, the student was opposed to this idea. Just by being born in a developed country, 
We get many things for nothing, such as the telephone, the automobile, electricity, and running water. These gifts of human ingenuity and invention do not degrade our lives, but rather enrich us. What degrades us is our lack of concern for those unfortunate enough to experience poverty, hunger, lack of medical care, and war. The social designs that are proposed in this writing merely provide an opportunity for individuals to develop their fullest potential in whatever endeavors they choose, without the fear of any loss of individuality. I'm going to say that again for all of those of you who continue to forget that this guy is in about individuality, but without the fear of any loss of individuality. There, I feel better now. <laughs> what guarantees people the right of participation? The reason for corruption is... is the reason for corruption is someone getting something they consider valuable out of an act. Without vested interests or the use of money, there is little to be gained by squelching opinion, falsifying information, or taking advantage of someone. There are no underlying rigid social barriers to limit the participation of someone or to restrain the introduction of new ideas. The objective is full, is full access to information, goods, and services for all a state of affairs that will enable people to participate in the exciting challenges of this new society. How would resources be distributed equitably in a resource-based society? Distribution of goods and services without, any, without the use of money or tokens would be accomplished through the establishment of distribution centers. The distribution centers would be similar to expositions where the advantages of the new products could be explained and demonstrated. For example, if you visited Yellowstone National Park, you could check out a camera or camcorder, use it, and then return it to another distribution center or drop-off, eliminating storing and maintenance. Besides computerized centers throughout communities where products will be displayed, there will be a 3D flat-screen imaging capabilities in each home. If you desire an item, an order can be placed and the item automatically delivered directly to your residence. Raw materials for the manufacture of products can be transported directly to manufacturing facilities by automated transportation sequences such as boats, monorails, maglev trains, pipelines, and pneumatic tubes. An automated inventory system can be connected to the distribution centers and manufacturing facilities, thus coordinating production with the demand and providing a constant evaluation of preferences and consumption. In this way, a balanced load economy can be maintained. Shortages, overruns, and waste could be eliminated In conclusion, in contrast to today's national security mania for intruding on everyone's privacy, in a resource-based economy, no one need take from another. It will be socially offensive and counterproductive for machines to monitor the activities of human beings, but more to the point, there will be no reason for it. A main purpose of this new social arrangement is to create an environment that will encourage the widest range of individuality, creativity, constructive endeavor, and cooperation without any elitism technical or otherwise. Significantly, a resource-based economy would generate a far different incentive system, one based on human and environmental concern. This would be not, this would be, not be a uniform culture, but one in a constant process of growth and improvement. It also anticipates the stabilizing of the world's population through education until the population coincides with the Earth's carrying capacity. When population exceeds the capacity of the land, many problems such as greed, crime, and violence emerge. As we enhance the lives of others, protect our environment, and achieve abundance, our lives can become richer and more secure. If these values were put into practice, we could achieve a much higher standard of living within a shorter period of time, 
one that would continuously improve. In a society of the future, when the monetary system and scarcity are replaced by a resource-based economy and most of our needs are met, private ownership as we know it will cease. The concept of ownership would be of no advantage in a high-energy society. Although this is difficult for many to imagine, even the wealthiest person today would be better off in a high-energy resource-based society. Today's middle class live far better than kings of the past. In a resource-based economy, everyone would live better than the powerful and wealthy of today. People would be free to pursue whatever constructive field of endeavor they chose without the economic pressures, restraints, and taxation that are inherent in the monetary system. By constructive endeavor, we mean anything that enhances the lives of the individual and others. When education and resources are available to all without a price tag, there will be no limit to human potential. With these major alterations, people will live longer, more meaningful, and healthier lives. The measure of success would be fulfilling one's individual pursuits rather than acquiring wealth, property, and power. This proposal is not utopian or Orwellian, nor does it reflect the dreams of impractical idealists. Instead, it offers attainable goals requiring only the intelligent application of what we already know. The only limitations are those which we impose upon ourselves. Well, that's the end of that chapter. I'm going to bring my panelists back on here. Um, I'm going to start with you, Jackie. Did you have any comments on that chapter? Um, you know, I went first the last time. I'd like to hear what other people have to say and maybe chime in towards the end. Okay. Uh, Chris and Brian? Okay. Um, well, I just thought it was interesting, and as I hear Jacques talk about a lot, um, when people seem to feel the same way about, you know, is everybody going to be the same? If this is, if, if, we, end, if we go into a resource-based uh, system with, with the world, you know, there not being any money, will everyone dress the same and be the same? And it, it is kind of funny, and, and to hear Jacques talk about it always makes me laugh. Because he, he, the whole system is almost set up to promote a, a wider range of individuality. You know, you can wake up every day and, and you would be able to in, invest your time into your interests. And, and you'd have, you could wake up and you could, um, you know, whatever you wanted to do that day, whatever you wanted to learn about, whatever, whatever place you wanted to go visit, you would just be able to do so everybody would kind of have a variety at their fingertips and, and it would allow for such a wider range of individuality, you know. I certainly agree. And I, I do want to comment one on one thing that comes up frequently is that um, people look at the, the artwork that Jacques does and they see that people in that artwork are usually wearing the same clothing. And they think that that means that we're going to create some kind of special rules that force you to do that. And that's totally bogus. The truth is, is that Jack just exposes the fact that fashion, for the most part, is crap. It's an invention to make, basically to make money. I mean, if you want an example of that, when I was growing up, guest jeans were the end thing, and I was made fun of for wearing Wrangler or Rustler jeans. The only difference between guest jeans and Wrangler or Rustler jeans was that guest jeans had a white triangle with a question mark on the front of them, and that was it. They weren't different at all. You know, fashion is crap. You know, that's why people have eventually overcome that and just won't care about it anymore. Yeah, and I feel that how can people seem to think there's individuality today when I see tons of American Eagle and Abercrombie shirts and Gap shirts. It's all the same. There's, a, there's about a handful of different 
things that most people wear. So, and they're just in different colors. So I don't, I'm not sure if that's what they mean by individual, like where they're going to lose this individuality of multiple colors from the same store and make a t-shirt. I, I don't really understand it. I mean, when, when the when the biggest retailer and the biggest grocery line is Walmart, you know that individuality is not exactly the forefront of, of this society that we're in right now. You know, I mean, we're we're all sort of, you know, like sheep that are just walking through this system. And, and it is funny because we, you know, there are a lot of responses about this. You know, people visualize the future as far as how, you know, Jacques Fresco has, has seen it and, and portrayed it in the Venus Project as this thing where it's like these like robotic drones that are going through life all being the same. And, you know, one of the things that Roxanne Meadows always says is that Jacques Fresco is the most individual person that she knows, and I completely agree. I mean, this man is like no one else I have ever met. And, you know, he's, he, he's been thinking about this and working on this and developing this pretty much his entire life. And it's like if, if there's any testament to it, 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 it's him. He's the perfect example. And, you know, really, you know, the truth is it's not even what you wear, but really what you think that makes a person an individual. So it's, it's, it's interesting, people's interpretation. And I would say, if anything, today, so many people think the same way. Yeah. So I, I, I tend to We're not... brainwashed to think the same. Yeah, I tend to see a lack of individuality today, whereas people seem to think this, that we would lose whatever this individuality is. I totally agree with that point, too. Now, Thunder, did you have any comments? Um, yeah, I, I agree with what they're saying. I, I think a lot of the resistance that we're seeing now is really based on ignorance and fear. And, uh, you know, all we can do is continue to educate and say, well, here's, you know, here's what you need to be thinking. And, and going back to a previous point earlier that the guys brought up about uh, how so many people tend to think based on today's knowledge, today's understanding, and, and that's what's limiting them from understanding what this, what the Venus Project is proposing. Um, so they need to, to coin an, an old phrase, think a little more outside the box and, and outgrow some of this um, limiting present-day thinking that they have, and you know, then they can maybe be more open to it. I, I, um, I wanted to jump off topic for just a quick second and let the people know in the chat room that we're not ignoring them. Um, somebody was in here earlier V, and uh, I don't see him in here now. He seemed to raise what he thought was an important point, and I wanted to see if you wanted to address it. Um, the book, The Best That You're Reading From, The Best That Money Can't Buy, um, is not available as a PDF as far as I know. It's not being offered for free, and he seemed to have a problem with that. Um, <laughs> he thinks the, Yeah, he thinks the book should be free, and if they want to make money to, to help their cause, they should be selling T-shirts and things like that, and, and I, I think, unfortunately, he's not here to address, but um, I think for the listeners, maybe you could just do a little piece uh, on, on that, a comment on that to make people understand that uh, um, they have bills to pay, too, and, and the very system that we're all trying to outgrow and do away with still has us handcuffed in, in certain ways. Well, you know, I guess what I would say to those people is the same thing like, you know, I ask for donations to help me keep this show going, okay? And uh, one of the reasons for that is because, unfortunately, we still function in a monetary system. 
And what I would tell people basically is you got to understand, I mean, Jacques and Roxanne have been doing this for a very long time out of their own pockets. And I'm not going to get into their financial situation, but I can tell you that uh, running the Venus Project is very expensive, and they've just been doing it out of the kindness of their own hearts, okay, um, and, and basically nothing else. I mean, until recently, I mean, it's like I even suggested at one point that we might have a money bomb for the Venus Project, and they didn't want it. They, do, they, they don't really want large quantities of money. They just want to be able to keep this message alive and be able to keep things going. You know, and when it comes to that book, you know, Jacques spent a lot of time on it, you know, I'd like to be able to, you know, if you tell you what, you know, fight for a resource-based economy, and then all books will be in PDF. <laughs> then we'll be able to do that. You know, until we get there, though, to be honest, um, you know, I'm glad that I have my book. I strongly recommend it to anybody else who wants to get it. Um, and until we can get out of that system, you know, unfortunately, there's going to be a cost that's incurred with, what, you know, with the efforts that these people bring out. It's just that simple. You know, I'd love to be able to do my radio show without ever having to ask for a dollar from anybody. Unfortunately, Comcast doesn't care that I'm trying to save the world. Um, <laughs> so, can I, right. go ahead. Can I, can I go ahead and add something to that, just being here on Venus and kind of mm-hmm. now seeing the day in and day out, you know, things that go on here. It's literally work all the time. I mean, this is a big plot of land. I mean, we live within the monetary system. There are no... Everything that's on this planet, I, for, for, for better or worse, is pretty much owned by somebody. So, you know, it, really the key thing here is education for, for, first and foremost, you know, until there can be a, a, the money to have a sample or an, an, um, an experimental city going and the feature films and stuff like that, which, which, takes a lot of, which takes a big budget in order to accomplish those tasks. So, but even on the day in and day out, Elect, you know, doing electricity so that there can be books shipped and mailed and emails can be answered and, and editing can be done and equipment to do the editing on, to make videos, to just keep educating the public on this um, um, direction and this vision, it, it costs money. There's nothing, you know, I, I, don't, I don't understand where the, where the, you know, confusion is for people because it's just like, well, how would we, how would Jacques and Roxanne and us here helping them continue to educate people if we didn't have the money to buy the materials to do things like that. So I just don't understand their, their disconnects with that. Plus, so. I'd like also people to understand that they're getting their money's worth. And when you think of all the stupid junk we throw money away on every single day, you know, from, yeah. you know. Good point. <laughs> you know, Starbucks coffee, the you know, Gatorade, I mean, all the garbage we put in our bodies, I mean, it's just, you know, don't do that for a week and buy this book for $25 and, you know, you're going to get something that's going to go into your body, go into your mind, and that's going to be yeah, I mean, a real education. Yeah, people need to understand <laughs> that Jock and Roxana, and I think it's fair to assume we're not making millions of dollars off this book so that they can drive limousines and go to Starbucks three times a day, like you like said, Jackie. And um, so I don't know why people seem to be so offended by the fact that they're charging money for a book only to be able to continue to produce the book. Um, and you know, it's a worthy purchase. It's something that you're getting absolutely. value for your money. I mean, money to me represents time of my day that's taken away from me. And, you know, I'm going to put it towards things that are going to be of a benefit, not just to myself, but to other people, because that's my philosophy. 
And, and you know what? Brian and I are in our 20s, and it takes a lot for us to keep up with Jock and Roxanne. I mean, they are focused on the Venus Project, and it is a all-day thing. I mean, they don't, they, I don't know if they've taken a vacation in the entire time, 30-some years they've been on this, you know, plot of land working on it. You know, they are always working on it. It is a, it is a constant thing. So, you know, I wish people knew that and could see that, and I really want to get that out there because... They could use more funding, you know. They can use more people donating and buying more books and getting it out there. They really could. Yeah, I'm actually kind of glad this book isn't in PDF format because I think, you know, it's just it it's it supports something that's really that we need, and that's the Venus Project. I mean, that's what we're here about. That's why we're here talking. And I have to admit that when I met Fresco. You know, I had that six-and-a-half-hour tour, which to me is a tremendous amount of time for anyone to spend with anybody. Um, you know, what did the little bit they asked for, which is to purchase their library, which I even, I even rocked down on the phone. She, like, didn't want to, she didn't want to ask. She's like, oh, well, you already donated money. We can deduct that. And you already brought the book. You don't have to buy it again. I'm like, no, you know, buy it. Give me a signed copy. I'm going to, you know, give it away as a prize for somebody that promotes this, you know, goes full out to promote this movement. And, um, you know they don't they don't want to ask nobody wants charity i mean you know no respectable person you know wants to live off of charity i mean that's the mindset that we live in you know that we have to earn our own our own way in this world and that's what we're trying to move away from because we're realizing that we're at a technological point where we don't have to think like that anymore you know, it's not a matter of, you know, having the resources and what your little land that you defend with, you know, swords or knives or guns or whatever, that, you know, we have the technology to get anything to the other side of the world in just a matter of hours, and we even have technology we're not developing that could probably get it, you know, to the other side of the world in a matter of minutes. I mean, we just, you know, the monetary system and these chapters are talking about are, are really limiting us for doing this, and they're just causing, you know, tremendous amount of waste, tremendous amount of garbage, and, you know, we're feeding into it. We're living, you know, on a pile of garbage, and that's what we're leaving for our children, and that's not sustainable. It's not intelligent, and the thing that really attracted me to the Venus Project and to the Zeitgeist Movement was here was an intelligent solution for the first time. You have all, you know, these, all these Band-Aid grassroots organizations out there that are addressing like one problem here and one problem there, but they're not addressing the foundation of it all, which is this, the system that's corrupt. Yeah, the monetary system, you know, was good in, in the sense where, you know, you had a system of exchange and bartering of goods so that you can get more out there and get more exposure to things, but it's grown to such a proportion that the game's been rigged, for one. You know, it's, it's a scam. There's so many people that have just gotten their claws into it. And, you know, if you look at history, I mean, you don't even have to go into conspiracy theories. I mean, all you have to do is look at the history. And you think these people, you know, when the Federal Reserve was... Um, you know, was established and income tax was established and they took everybody's gold and I have to think to myself, what were my ancestors thinking? Like, what were these people thinking? What were they doing? I mean, you had McCarthyism, you had the Red Scare, you know, you had this, you know, people were unionizing. I mean, people were out there being shot and killed and protesting and marching so that we could have, you know, paid holidays and, you know, health care benefits and things like that. I mean, there were children working in sweatshops 
And, you know, we have all these machines that were basically replacing things that children were doing. You know, and it's funny about that is that the average capitalist, it's like, for example, um, I, I remember, if you guys may have listened to my previous show where I was debunking capitalism. It was more specifically addressing a couple of guys who were attacking Jacques Fresco on YouTube. And one of them was wearing a Ron Paul T-shirt. And, you know, they were free market economic, you know, Austrian economic people. Um, and I used to be one, so I understand how they think. But um, at one point, you know, I was reading from the book that they had suggested debunk the concept of technological unemployment. And the first thing that it suggested was, well, there won't be any technological unemployment because any machine that you're going to use to get rid of a job is going to create a job by having to make that machine, you know, assuming that people are not going to automate you know, the making of the machine that makes the machines in the first place. But at one point, they gave data. This is them giving data to try to claim, this is in the book, mind you, this book was written in 1946, okay, uh, to claim that, um, you know, that these problems are essentially no big deal, even though it flat out admitted, for example, um, in the sewing machine industry or something, basically making clothing, uh, they admitted that it put uh, like 50,000 people into total poverty for 40 years. And then they just chalk that up as an acceptable loss. You know, the, the attitude about it is, well, yeah, but it eventually leveled out, so don't worry. You know, 40 years of poverty for 50,000 people, no big deal in the name of free enterprise. You know, and that's, that's generally like the, the attitude that infects your mind. You know, it's like the, this is the biggest point about all this, you know, because these two chapters kind of played into each other. And I noticed in the second chapter, um, you know, in the second chapter, basically, they, uh, they address you know, this, this chapter, second chapter we did today, addressed a lot of the things that we were saying about the first chapter. And largely, I would say, basically, to, to people, is to think very heavily about the fact that we're talking about a totally different attitude. I remember when I was on another show that Jacques and, Jacques and Roxanne were on, I, I called in, and people were asking, well, how are you going to do this without money and all this other stuff? And I remember the point that I made was this, and I actually got to hear Jacques say, right on, right on. <laughs> I thought it was back in the 60s. But yeah, but he said. Uh, but basically, my my point was, when you want to go make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in your mom's house, does your mom ask you to pay for it? You know, no, she doesn't. Your mom essentially is the central computer for your resource-based economy within your house. She sees to it that the resources are distributed equally. If somebody shows up and starts making, say, six peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, that's when mom pipes up and says, "Hey, that's that's such a good idea." However, when mom goes to the grocery store, she makes a list. And in this list are the resources that are required to take care of everybody in her home, okay? And that's essentially what we propose on a global scale, that human beings essentially need to surpass this concept, you know, of fighting each other for resources when we could be essentially creating a system where the resources are adequately distributed to everybody, you know? And that's basically um, a large point about it is that, you know, it, it, people don't recognize that these sorts of things are being done already in their own homes. You know, it, it is possible. It's just a matter of a change of attitude. If your mom asked you to pay, you know, to pay for the water you used in the bathtub, you'd look at her like she was crazy. You know, why would you do that? You know, it, maybe when you got older, you might be asked to help contribute to the resources of the household, and that would be fine. But that, that's the same concept, essentially, is that mankind needs to become a large family. So we're down to the last 90 seconds of the show here. Um, I want to thank all of my panelists for coming on. I want to tell you, my listeners, if you want to support this show, please don't hesitate to donate. I need the money. <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot. Uh, say good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody.
Thanks again, and welcome to this uh, welcome to this uh, like another edition of the series of V Radio on the best that money can't buy. And um, in the last minute of the show, I'm going to say thanks again, and um, look forward to further broadcasts and look out for VTV. I will be broadcasting documentaries to help educate you guys. For those of you who don't like to read. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I like to read. Thanks again, and, everyone. And do what you can to get off the grid. Small steps now, big steps later. Yeah, and people first, profits, they shouldn't even exist. People and first. And really start finding ways to point out to people how environment shapes their behavior. Really give it to them in their face. That's my big, yeah. In their face, <laughs> like a hockey power play. Yeah, there you go. There you go. So for those that are overwhelmed, just remember this. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. <laughs> Amen. Thanks again, everybody, and thanks to those who donated. And I will be keeping this up. And uh, thanks again for listening. Good night, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye. Good night.